If you weren't here last weekend, I started a new series on the life of Moses, and uh, this will be part two today. And uh, if you weren't here last week, I, I laid some really, we're going to spend the whole month of, of July, at least four weeks, uh, uh, talking about the life of Moses. And, and really, it's not just about Moses. Really what we're doing is we're following in love with God. You're going to see it again today. We're really, it's really, the life of Moses is just an excuse to talk more about God. But really, we're learning a lot about God and a lot about life. Uh, uh, through the life of Moses, but lessons of the life of Moses. And last week, though, I laid some foundational stuff. And again, I know people are in and out during summer. You've got, there's vacations and long weekends and cottages and all sorts of stuff. But if you weren't here last weekend, I would really urge you to go back. Again, they're all free. You can listen or watch them uh, on our website. But I, I laid some really foundational truths about Moses there are some subconscious barriers that, as Christians, when we read the Bible, there are subconscious barriers that keep us from getting everything God wants us to get out of these, sto- out of these stories. And I knocked some of those down uh, last week. Some really important and some historical stuff, some background about Moses that you need to have to get everything that God really wants to give you in this series. So if you're here today and you weren't here last week, you'll want to go back and listen to that. But anyway, one of the things then, and I can't, don't have time to go through all that today, but uh, one of the things we started to do then last week, and we're going to continue on this week, and actually it's going to take us now into next week as well is we started to look at at four seasons. There was four seasons or stages that God took Moses through in his life as he was moving Moses from being an ordinary person who God couldn't use to being an ordinary person who God could use, right? At no point, and and we stressed this last week, at no point in the story of Moses is Moses ever anything more than a regular, ordinary, frail human being just like any of us. But God took him through a process whereby he moved him from being an ordinary person, because we're all ordinary people, but some of us ordinary people get used and some of us do not. And, but God took Moses on a very clear, uh, through a very clear process in his life where he moved him from being an ordinary person who could not be used by God and the power of God could not flow through his life to being an ordinary person who God uh, could use. Okay? And ultimately where we're heading is today we're going to talk a lot about the burning bush and about stage three. And next week we're going, to, we're going to get, I was hoping to get to stage four this week, but I mean always these things take longer than I think. But next week I want to get to stage four. And when we get into stage four, we're going to look at the last third of Moses' life. And there's, there was one overarching principle. And I want to keep that ahead of, ahead of you. That's the most important thing that we've gotten to in this series so far. But as we're going to get to next week is there was one overarching principle that Moses lived in the last third of his life. And it's not a gimmick, I promise you. But in the last third of his life, Life that sets him apart and which allowed the power of God to just, it, and, it's, and it's there for all of us, okay? And so we're working our way there. But last week we looked at the first two stages or seasons of his life, and the first one was the wants to save the world stage, right? And we looked at the fact that in the first 40 years of Moses' life, uh, he, he, you know, he was very confident in his abilities. He was very confident in his connections. He was even very confident in his calling. We looked at the fact that long before the burning bush, Moses already felt called to deliver the children of Israel from, from Egypt long before the burning bush. And uh, the only problem is he was so confident in himself that he tried to do it in his own strength, in his own time, by his own way. And we looked at the fact that good intentions, and this is a really important point I made last week, good intentions are not enough. And we tend to think that good intentions and good causes are, that's all God wants. Like, as long as I'm involved in a good cause, as long as I'm involved with a good intention, that's all God cares about. And what we don't realize, like Moses, 
our good intentions and these good causes are like a thin paper of wall, a thin layer of wallpaper, and it's covering over, masking what's on the inside. And we can be working on good causes and have good intentions, and inside we are filled with selfishness and pride and greed and all of these sorts of things, and God can't stand it. And we think it's good enough to just have a good cause. And that's what Moses thought too. He had a good cause. He had talentability. He thought he was working for God and he failed. And it ended up with him in the desert for 40 years of disillusionment. All right? And, uh, and so that's where we want to pick up today because God wanted to break him down from, being, from a place where he thought he could do great things to God for God to a place where he would be poor in spirit and he would recognize his absolute need for God and depend on God and realize that apart from God, he can do nothing. And so that's what stage two is all about. And many of us, God has to take us through stage twos. Hopefully it doesn't take 40 years for most of us, okay? But anyway, we're going to pick up now with the burning bush. And uh, why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes and let's just ask God to really bless our time here and speak to us. Because I believe as we study Moses' life, Moses was so human. There's stuff in each one of these messages for every one of us, all right? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, first of all, we acknowledge you are a real person. And we're praying to a real God right now, not some invisible, uh, you know, flubby, weird, vague, ethereal thing. We're, we're praying to a real person right now. And uh, Father, I thank you that you are real. I thank you for this church that you are raising up. I thank you for the life of Moses. I thank you that you, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you wrote out the stories of these, of these people and you didn't hide over. Many other religions hide over the flaws. But Lord, I, I'm so thankful that when you wrote these stories that you kept in all the failures because it encourages us and we can learn so much. And I just pray today, Father, I believe that in, in your word, there is something here for everyone here today. Father, I pray that that one thing, you have planned one thing out of this message for every person here. I pray that that one thing would stand out to them, that it would pierce them, that they would not forget it when they leave. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to start with the burning bush, and we're just going to read scads and scads of scripture. We're going to read big chunks of Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 today as we work through the burning bush in stage 3 in Moses' journey from being an ordinary person who could not be used to be an ordinary person who was powerfully used. And so we start in Exodus chapter 3, verses, verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 12 here. And uh, you can follow along. But by the way, while we're going through the series, I'm going to be doing big chunks of, of Scripture like this. If you have a Bible, I, I sometimes find it easier than following on the PowerPoint. It, you might want to just follow along in your Bible, even though it's all going to be up there. Anyway. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And, you know, there are just so many stories that I, I hope when, when we get to heaven, I hope that Jesus has like a heavenly PVR, and we can go back or, or whatever, and he's recorded these, because I really want to see this. Okay? But anyway, what did this look like? What did Moses see? It must have been amazing. Anyway, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And, and again, I can, you can only imagine, what does God's voice sound like? But he calls him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
and Moses hid his face. Okay, Moses is not just having a vision here. He's, in the, he's coming into the very presence of Yahweh himself. Okay, so the ground becomes holy. It's very bright. It's, it's scary, okay? This is not Santa Claus Moses is meeting with here. This is the creator, creator of the universe. And so Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, I have to stop there for just a moment. This, I just, I love the way God operates here. He says, I have come down to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. Now, that doesn't look like that's, it doesn't look like that's what he's doing right now, does it? I mean, think about this for a moment. If you imagine in your head, God says to you, I have come down to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. What do you picture in your head? I know what I picture. I picture Jesus on a horse with a sword, and he's over in Egypt, killing Egyptians and delivering the Israelites, right? I mean, that's, I've come down to deliver. That's not what we see happening here. God says, I have come down to deliver Israel from the hands of the, the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. And where do we find him? He's not in Egypt. He's out in the middle of the Midianite desert talking to what looks like to everybody else a washed up 80-year-old shepherd. What does that have to do with, with you coming down to deliver the Egyptians, right? I mean, imagine you're Moses. God comes down and he says, uh, I've come down to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. And you say, sweet. And then kind of a little bit awkward silence. And then God asks you to go. And you're like, I thought you were going to deliver them. What does this have to do with me? I'm a shepherd. I'm minding my own business here. You said you were coming down to deliver them. What are you doing talking to me, right? This is, uh, this is one of the things I love about God. Until Jesus comes back, whenever God comes down to deliver someone or do something here on the earth, he always sends a person. And that counts. That counts. People say, when is God going to come down? And you find that person who God has sent on his behalf, and that counts. He has come down. Imagine Moses, he's got to show up. Again, he's an 80-year-old shepherd. Imagine him showing up to the Israelite leaders in Egypt and saying, God has come down to deliver you. And, and, and they're kind of looking behind. So where is he? Right? Where is he? And Moses is like, well, I, that, that's why I'm here. And see, God doesn't pick. He doesn't pick the most talented. He doesn't pick the strongest. We talked about this last week. We saw this in 1 Corinthians. He picks the weakest and the most foolish, the ones we think least potential there. And he says, okay, there is a real puny one right over there. I'm going to come down and deliver you, and you, I want you to go for me. And I'm going to work through you. I have come down, but he's sending Moses, right? Love that. Anyway, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and with names like that, they didn't deserve to be in the land, and that's why they had to be kicked out. But, uh, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? Moses said to God, who am I? I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, this is amazing. Because remember, we looked at Moses last week. I showed you many scriptures. He was very confident in himself. We saw in the book of Acts that when he was 40 years old, Moses thought it was so obvious that he was a deliverer of Israel, he thought everyone else should be able to see it too. 
And now 40 years of stage two has done exactly what God wanted it to do, hasn't it? He's gone from, it should be obvious that I'm the deliverer, to now 40 years later, God shows up and says, hey, Moses, you're the deliverer. 40 years ago, Moses said, I'm the deliverer. God said, you're the right person, but it's, you're not right yet for the job. Now he comes and says, you were right all along, and now you're right for the job, and you're the one to go. And Moses says, who am I? In other words, I'm not qualified. And sometimes we read this passage and we think, oh, Moses just didn't have faith. No, Moses isn't giving a faithless answer here. He's giving the right answer. This is why God sent Moses into the desert in the first place. Because God doesn't call people who can do it. If, if, if you and I were capable of doing God's work, when God wants to do a work somewhere here on the earth, he doesn't call people who are capable of doing it. Because if they were capable of doing it, they wouldn't need him, and then it would be their work, not his work. But God wants to do God's work. God's work means only God can do it. So he's going to pick people who can't do it so that he can do it through them. So he wants Moses. This isn't faithlessness. This is bang on correct. Moses says, who am I? I'm not qualified. And God says, oh, I can use that. I can use that. He's very happy with that. Now, I want you to notice, however, um, uh, God's, uh, how he's going to answer. So don't put that up there quite yet, Ken. But I want you to notice now how God's going to answer this thing. Because Moses says, I'm not qualified. I can't go to Pharaoh. I, 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 can't, I can't take on that kind of a project. I don't, know if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been there, right? I mean, we all have these experiences with God sometimes in our life. And, and sometimes we say yes, and sometimes we say no. And I hope after this message that there's going to be a whole bunch of us saying yes. But God comes to you, and he asks you to do something, right? And it always feels over your head. He asks you to give something far above and beyond what you were given before. And you think, I can't. I don't have enough. He asks you to lead something, and you... And you've just never led anything that big before. He said, I can't. So it's over my head. And God says, that's exactly it. But now what I want you to see is how God answers. Because he answers Moses totally different than how we answer people in our culture. In our culture, and I'm not just talking the, the, the non-Christian culture. I'm talking about even in churches. Someone comes to us and they say, you know, I think God's called me to do this. And I just can't do it. I'm not a good enough leader. You know how we usually answer? And I include myself in this. We usually answer with a big pep talk, Right? So the person comes in and they say, I can't. And we say, oh, no, 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 you can. You can. We pat them on the back. You're smart enough. You're good enough. And doggone it, people like you. Like you are, we give them that self-esteem thing, right? Yeah, you're a great leader. They say, I think God's called me to do this. I don't think I can do it. Oh, yes, you can. You're a great leader. You're amazing. You're a child of the king. You're just blessed, blah, blah. And we just pep talk, pep talk, pep talk. And I want you to notice, we're going to see this throughout this entire, all this whole passage, Exodus 3 and 4. It's going to be a long conversation between God and Moses. I want you to notice that at no point does God ever pep talk Moses. Never once. He never once says, you know, Moses says, who am I? And God says, no, 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 Moses, I wouldn't call you if you weren't the right guy. You are the right guy. No, God doesn't say that because he knows it's not true. He knows it's not true. It's not true. God, Moses isn't a good enough leader to do what God's called him to do. And so throughout this conversation, you're going to see God never pep talks him. He always takes the focus off of Moses and puts, him on, puts it on himself. So I want you to see what God says to Moses in response. Moses says, who am I? I'm not qualified. But God said, okay, he said, next verse, I will be with you. You're right, Moses. Who are you? You're nobody. You're nobody. You're puny. You're nothing. I mean, I love you. It's not that you're not loved. I love you. But you're puny. You can't do any of this. But I will go with you. 
That's the only promise any of us gets when God asks us to do something that's over our head. He never promises that you're going to be strong enough, fast enough, smart enough, good-looking enough. He never promises any of that. He says, but I will be with you. That's what really matters because my strength is bigger than your weakness, right, Paul said? And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. I will be with you. That's the promise of God with Moses, okay? Now, of course, we know, I mean, Moses said in this famous story, and you know what's going to come next, 40 years in the desert is so shaken Moses' self-confidence. I mean, he's just afraid. And all of, we know this, right? God comes to us. He challenges us with something. And we're, we're afraid. God says, I want you to go and apologize for something you did. I can't do it. I want you to go witness to so-and-so, your friend or your coworker, or your family member. I want you to go talk to them. I can't do it. We're afraid. It's over our heads. And Moses is so shaken. He doesn't just say now, uh, you know, yes, sir. And I'm so glad he doesn't because it's encouraging for me. Okay? And so Moses now, in the rest of chapter 3, he's going to throw excuse after excuse at God. But God, I can't. So he says, who am I? God says, I'm going to go with you. And then Moses says, yeah, but, 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 I can't do this. And God will say, I, I, but I'm going to go with you. And he throws up a whole bunch of roadblocks, and God smashes them all down. And then in chapter 4, I'm just going to skip ahead. We don't have time to go through all of them. I want to take you to the last excuse that Moses throws God's way, okay? This is the last one, Exodus 4. 10 to 15, Moses is still resisting God. He says, there's no way I can do this. He pulls out the big guns now, and, and he uses up his, his last one. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the word translated slow there in Hebrew is the Hebrew word kaved, and, uh, and it literally means heavy. Okay, if you, if you actually, in fact, if you read this, it, and it comes up twice, if you read this literally in the Hebrew text, it reads, I am heavy of speech and I am heavy of tongue. Okay, and I looked this up in a number of, of commentaries from the centuries. I looked up, uh, like going back like a thousand years, Jewish commentaries and Christian commentaries. And one of the things that many commentaries have, have said is this idea, what heavy of tongue it, there's a very good chance this is talking about an actual physical, like a, some kind of a speech impediment. Like, for example, could be a stutter, we don't know what. But some kind of actual uh, uh, speech uh, impediment, okay? And so when Moses says this, well, I mean, so God is asking him, uh, I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh, okay? Now I want you to think about this. And then Moses says, uh, I can't because... I've got this thing. I can't communicate properly. Now, here's the thing I want you to realize. Because again, we often look down on the Bible characters when we're reading these stories. We just think, oh, Moses, you have no faith. You just have no faith, Moses. Like, if I, if I was there, I would have done it, right? As if, okay? <laughs> but the thing I want you to realize here is this is actually a legitimate excuse. Is it not? I mean, this is as legitimate as it gets, okay? God is calling Moses. I want you to go to Pharaoh, who is the most powerful leader in the entire world, by far, at that point. And Moses, you're going to have to talk to him repeatedly. You're going to have to talk to him and his whole court, okay, on my behalf. You would actually need communication ability to do that, don't you think? I mean, you would need communication. That's just a basic tool. If I want to lower my son's seat, I need a wrench to do it, okay? If I don't have a wrench, I can't do it. And it's same, you would think with Moses, he's going to go talk to Pharaoh, he must actually have uh, speech ability or he can't do it. Not to mention that after that, he's got to lead a couple of million people out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. So this is legitimate. You would think to do those things, 
to do those things, you must have good communication ability, okay? And so Moses says, uh, God, you, you cut the wrong person. I don't have the right gift mix. I find someone who can talk. I have problems forming words. How can I be used by you to do this? And isn't this exactly how we are too? No, 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 God, 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 God. No, that doesn't ma- match up with how you made me. You want me to do X, I can't do X because I don't have this tool, this tool, this ability, this whatever, that I need to do that, okay? And we would think that's legitimate. But again, I want you to, I want you to see how God answers him. And the thing I want you to notice, first of all, again, now two things I want you to notice that he does not say to Moses. First of all, he does not pat Moses on the back and tell him, Moses, you're a better communicator than you think. No, doesn't do that. Moses is probably every bit as bad a communicator as he thinks, maybe even worse, okay? God doesn't lie to him. But I want you to notice the second thing, this, and this one to me is really powerful. God does not tell him, Moses, in order to do this calling, I'm going to heal your speech impediment. See, we have this weird theology in North America that in order, if God's going to use me in something like that, and if I don't have the gifting, or if I, if I have a disability, like Moses, not even that Moses just has a, not a gifting, he has a disability. And we would think, well, in order to use me, God must first fix the disability. Again, I can't raise or lower my son's seat without a wrench. And we would think, I can't do it without this tool. I want you to notice God does not promise to give him the tools he needs. He doesn't promise to fix him. He doesn't promise to heal him. He doesn't promise to make him suddenly good at communication. I want you to notice what he says. Moses keeps putting the focus on himself and what he can't do, and I want you to see what God says. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who has made man's mouth? God says, I made your mouth, Moses. That means any speaking ability you have, you got from me. And that means any speaking disability you have, you also got from me. I know exactly who you are and I'm calling you anyway. He says, stop looking at yourself, Moses. Moses, I can't. I can't even form words. I can hardly talk. And God says, forget about that. I made your mouth. I'm calling you anyway. And then we get the promise, the same promise that Moses God in the previous passage, and he gets it over and over again. God does not promise to heal him. Look at this, verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. Here's the powerful thing about this. God doesn't need to fix Moses' speech problem for Moses to be used by him. Because here's the thing. If God is with your mouth, it doesn't matter how the words come out, they're going to shake nations. If God's with your mouth... And a stutter comes out, that stutter's going to accomplish everything for God God wanted it to, to accomplish. He doesn't have to fix Moses' speech problem. He doesn't have to fix your disabilities. He doesn't have to fix your, your lack of abilities. He doesn't have to fix your weaknesses. He doesn't have to do any of those things. He, in fact, he wants to take your weaknesses, and in his hands, they become game changers. So I'm not going to fix your stutter, Moses. I'm not going to fix your impediment. I'm going to be with your mouth. And then whatever you stutter out of that, whatever you get out of your mouth, you just open it and I will take that weakness and I will move mountains. I will split seas. I will bring plagues. But I will do it and I will get the glory because it's obviously couldn't be you. That's powerful. See, here's a really important principle you have to understand. God never asks. See, we, we always get mixed up. And I think Moses was mixed up too. 
Moses looks at the job God's calling him to do, and he, this is what we always do. We put the focus on the abilities needed to do the job. So Moses looks at the job. I have to go, God's calling me to go talk to Pharaoh and lead a couple million people. Okay, in order to do that, I have to be a great speaker and a great leader. And Moses looks at himself and says, I'm not a great speaker, I'm not a great leader. But here's the thing I want you to notice in this passage, and this is true for all of us. God never once in this passage ever, ever calls Moses to be a great speaker or a great leader. Never once. God will never call you to be a great anything. He'll never call you to be a great speaker. He'll never call you to be a great giver. He'll never call you to be a great leader. He'll never call you to be a great anything. I want you to notice God only calls Moses to do one thing. One thing. And I want, can I put up the next screen there and it's going to highlight the word down there. Now therefore go. God never ever asks Moses to be a great speaker or a great leader. He only asks him to do one thing. Go. That's it. God says, just show up. Show up. Open your mouth and give me what you have in all of its puniness and weakness and foolishness. Just go. I'm not calling you to be great, Moses. Not calling you to be a great leader. Not calling you to be a great communicator. I'm just telling you, go as you are, and I will take that weakness. I will take that puniness, and in my hands, I will do my work. Now, therefore, go. And that is God's calling on all of our lives. Not, there isn't a single one of us here today. See, we build up the pressure on ourselves. And God puts, starts to put a dream in our hearts of some ministry or something he wants us to serve or something he wants us to do. And we look at that ministry and we, you know, and then we make a mental checklist of all the things we've got to be great at in order for that ministry to work. And, and that's just missing the point. He's not calling you to be great. He's just calling you to go. He'll do the ministry. You just show up. You show up in all your weakness and you give him what you have. And he works. Anyway, as we go on with the story here, Moses continues to resist God's call, as we know. Verse 13, the next verse, says this, but he said, my Lord, right? Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And now for the first time in the story, up to this point, there has been no anger from God. God's very patient because, again, the reason God's been patient and merciful is because this is where he has wanted Moses to be. He, he put him out in the desert so that Moses would say, I can't. But now, finally, he gets mad at, at Moses. And then it says, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you both what to do. Now, I want to just take a moment here. And we need to really discern here what God is mad at and what God isn't mad at. Because again, people read this story and, and they sometimes take the wrong bent on this story. Okay? And they think, well, Moses is, God's mad at Moses because he's being negative. He's speaking negatively with his, with his mouth and he's not confident in himself or whatever. That, those are not the reasons why God is mad at Moses. Not even close. Those are the reasons why God sent Moses into the desert. God wanted Moses to lose his trust in Moses. That was part of the plan. And that is not what God's mad at. What God is mad at here is not that Moses lost his trust in Moses. It's that Moses failed to replace his loss of trust in himself with a corresponding trust in God. God is mad not because Moses is saying, I can't. God wants Moses and all of us to say, I can't. He's mad at Moses because Moses is now saying, I won't, which shows that he won't trust God to do it through him anyway. See, there's a fine line. This is a very fine line here. There's a fine line that when you move into the poor in spirit camp and you begin to realize that apart from God, I can do nothing. 
There's a very fine line you can cross over there where you think you're not trusting yourself, but really you've gone into a place where you're not trusting God. And you say, well, how do I know? I mean, if it's such a fine line, how do I, how do I know if I've crossed over that line? It's actually very easy. Very, very simple. Very simple to know if you've crossed over the line from not trusting yourself to actually just not trusting God. Here's how you know. Disobedience. Disobedience. If you're just not trusting yourself, you'll say, I can't, but God will ask you to do something. And you'll say, I will anyway. I can't, but I will. Okay, Lord, I can't do it, but I'll step out. I'll give you what I have, and you'll have to do something. If you've crossed over the line, he'll come and speak to you like he did with Moses, and you'll say, I can't, and I won't, because you're not trusting God to be able to use you in spite of your weaknesses. So God's anger is finally kindled at Moses. But you know, the amazing thing I find about God and throughout this whole series, I just fall in love with God and his mercy and grace because amazingly enough, he doesn't give up on Moses. He doesn't just, fine, you obstinate little whatever, right? Okay? And, uh, and, and just get rid of him. Mean, I mean, okay, think, let's think about this. Think about the audacity of saying no to God. I want, I want us to try and kind of try, and obviously we can't do this very well, but I want us to try and picture this a little bit from God's point of view. Okay, imagine this. Imagine this. You are the creator of the universe, okay? And you create everything that is out of nothing. And you create these little puny beings called humans, okay? And each one of these puny human beings, as we looked at in the Sovereignty series, each one of these puny human beings is actually dependent on you every second for breath. Like you have to keep, the Bible's very clear about this, you have to keep giving them breath to keep them alive. They can't exist apart from you sustaining them. And if at any moment you ceased to hold up their lives, they would just, kaput, and they're dead, okay? So now, you come to one of these puny little human beings who you are upholding their life right now, this moment, as you talk to them. And you say to them, hey, I want to do something with you. I want you to come with me. We're going to do this amazing thing. And you and me together, I'm going to do it, but you get to do it with me. And we're going to go over there and we're going to do this thing. And then this puny human being who needs you for their very breath looks up at you and with the very breath you just gave them says, no. <laughs> what? Okay. I just think of when my kids say no to me, okay? Hello. Run that by me again, right? You just said no to me. I mean, you can't even say no unless I give you the ability to say no. You just said no to me. I'm the creator. You rely on me for life. You said no. God would have been well within his rights. I mean, if we had God's power, Moses doesn't make it past one or two no's, guaranteed. In fact, we would just end up doing everything ourselves because all human beings would be dead, okay? <laughs> but God in his mercy, I mean, think of the graciousness and mercy of God. He just, he, he, he doesn't, he could, he could turn his back on Moses and say, I'm leaving you to rot in this wilderness for the rest of your life. That's it. You'll never hear from me again. He could just strike him dead with a lightning bolt right there. He doesn't do any of those things. In fact, he makes a concession. I mean, it's, it's so mind-blowing. It almost seems wrong, but it's in the Bible. He makes a concession. He says, fine. If it's not enough for you that I'll go with you, I'll send, some, I'll send your brother Aaron to go with you too. I mean, that was the, the, the mercy of God, not to just chuck Moses out and give up on him. And I think of how we human beings are, by the way. I just, I mean, Moses is so human here. I mean, it's not enough. He is in the presence of Yahweh. He's right there with Yahweh. It's not like he's having a vision. He's not seeing, like sometimes when we pray, we kind of feel distant from God. He's right there with Yahweh. Yahweh says, I'll go with you. Moses says, that's not enough. Okay, fine, I'll send your older brother Aaron with you. Oh, phew, okay, good. 
Like, what difference is Aaron going to make? Yahweh just said he would go with you, but that's how we are, isn't it? Isn't that? We always want someone to come with us because if the ship goes down, we don't want to be the only ones that go down, right? So good. Oh, good. My older brother Aaron's going to go down with me, and that, that makes me feel better, but whatever. So the good thing about this whole story is Moses does finally give in. God doesn't give up on him, and Moses, and Moses does finally give up on him, finally does give in and say yes, and God's persistence and grace uh, wears him down, and he says yes, and so we move into stage three, okay? Stage one, wants to save the world. Stage two, disillusionment. And stage three, encounter with God, leading to grudging obedience, okay? And I want you to, again, notice the word grudging. I mean, this is why this story gives me so much encouragement. We're going to see next week in stage four that Moses does come to a place of being an ordinary person who's wholehearted for God, and every one of us has that opportunity too. But he's not there yet, and it's so true of all of us as well. He has an encounter with God, and he moves into grudging obedience. He's not wholehearted yet. And, uh, you know, I, when I was getting ready for this message, actually, I thought about it. I was, I was actually just going to call Mos- the stage three, I was just going to call it encounter with God. But I realized sometimes I was getting ready that encountering God isn't a stage in and of itself. It isn't. And uh, if Moses would have persisted in saying no to God, if Moses would have fi- persisted and just said no, 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 eventually God would have, would have left and Moses would have, been, would have been stuck in the desert where he was before, right? See, having an encounter with God doesn't move you to a new stage. It's having an encounter with God and saying yes to God. That moves you somewhere. And a lot of Christians get mixed up exactly right here. They have some kind of powerful experience. Oh, Powerful dreams or visions. They might be gifted that way. Or they go on a retreat. Powerful encounter with God. They just, powerful something. Powerful meeting with God. Powerful experience with God. And they can tell everybody about it. And they write about it and journal about it and all sorts of stuff. But here's the thing. If you don't say yes to God and take a step and begin to obey him out of that encounter with God, the encounter is nothing. You're still in the desert. And lots of people have encounters with God and they never move forward. They never get to stage three. They never get to stage four because they just wallow there in their disillusionment and in their lack of trust and in their self-pity or whatever it is that causes human beings to wallow and say no to God. But Moses does say yes, and it's the saying yes. The encounter with God triggers it, but it's the saying yes that moves him into a new stage. And so he moves into a stage of, of grudging obedience, all right? Not wholehearted yet. He's still struggling. And this brings us to one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible, because I'm just working my way through today, Exodus 3 and 4. So, Moses has this experience with God, the burning bush. He says, yes, he begins to grudgingly obey. God is moving him out of the desert. He's moving him out of stage two in disillusionment. First thing he does is he goes home to his father-in-law to ask for permission. And then he, he gets his wife and kids and they pack up their stuff and they begin to head to Egypt. And we get, and it's right here, we get one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to read it to you in just a second. I get questions about this all the time. But basically what happens is while Moses is on the way to obeying God, God shows up in his camp one night to kill him or his son. We're not sure which one. Okay? So let's read it. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. We don't know who the him is there. Him or his son. Okay? So, wait a minute, God. Okay, you didn't kill him when he was being obstinate at the burning bush. He actually goes to obey you now. He's got his family. He's on his way to obeying. And now you show up to kill him. Okay? That's not even the weird part. Verse 25, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Wow, okay. And said, (laughs) 
You know what I love about the Bible? This thing is not tame. You know, one of the things, uh, you know, you hear all these seeker-sensitive people, you know, there's all these churches and stuff, they, and there's nothing wrong with them. Good, uh, maybe God called them to do that. But you got these churches that are real, real big on seeker-sensitive. And basically, they, they censor out 98% of this book because it is so radically uncivilized and barbaric, and they don't want people to see that side of God because they think they won't get saved. And so they just give them the kind of the neat... You know what? People aren't attracted to that anyway. People want the real God. Anyway, that's why I love this book. It would actually probably be rated R. For sure it would be rated R to put the Bible into a video. But anyway... <laughs> so she takes off a flint and cut off her son's... Oh, I read that already. I probably shouldn't do it again. Surely... <laughs> <laughs> I had one guy tell me yesterday he was having sympathy pains, and I said, okay, whoa, I'll you know, go to the prayer room. And uh, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, so he, God, let him alone. And it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So we have these three verses. So we have this grand narrative of the, of the Exodus story, right? And then in the middle of it, and we have these weird three verses, and then it just goes back. No commentary. Just, and I mean, again, like these three verses never make it into the movies about Moses. You know, you get an animated film about Moses, you don't get this. But you just get, here's the big story of Exodus we all know, and then beep, hear this, and then back to the, the story we know. And what is going on, right? What on earth is going on here? Well, I'm going I'm to explain it to you now, but this has everything to do with compromise, and it's a very important place that we just spent here for the, for the last bit of this message. Because in stage three, one of the things that will derail people out of stage three is compromise. They will, they will say yes to God, and they will begin to grudgingly obey. And before they can reach stage four, which we're going to talk about next week, where you become wholehearted, but before they reach there, they will make compromises, and those compromises can derail you, and you'll be right back in stage two. And what's happening here, this story, the Holy Spirit put this story in there on purpose, and it's, and it's there for a reason, and this is an example of Moses' heart is not wholehearted, he is still compromising, and it, and it, almost, it almost gets him in huge trouble. He said, okay, well, how, what, okay, what's happening, okay? Let's, let's talk about what we know, and let's do a little background on this, on this passage. First of all, here's what we know um, that you might not know just from reading this, but we know from a few chapters later in Exodus, we know that Moses has two sons, uh, Gershom and Eliezer, Okay? We know from this, from this passage here, we know that one of them, it's not both of them, one of them is not circumcised, okay? And so again, people say, well, why on earth, why on earth is circumcision such a big deal, right? Like circumcision and then God killing, like what? I mean, the big, the big deal, see, in our Western civilized thing, we just think the, the big goal here is just deliver the Israelites. Who cares about little things like this, okay? This wasn't a little thing to God. Okay, let me explain why. What, what was circumcision? Where did it start? Why is this a big deal in the story? Okay, let's, a uh, little bit of history. Uh, Genesis uh, 17, God meets with Abraham. God comes down and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, even that right there, I mean, we just read these stories so many times as Christians, we lose our wonder and awe. But think about this. He makes the universe. He makes puny human beings. He comes down and makes a covenant with one of those human beings. I mean, it's just shocking. Why would God do that? He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes promises back and forth. And he promises to bless the entire world. He does not just promise to bless the Jewish people. You read Genesis 12, 15, and 17. He repeatedly promises to bless the entire world through Abraham's descendants, who are going to be the Jews. And he promises to send a Messiah, and he promises them the land of Israel, a bunch of things. He makes a bunch of promises. And in response, he asks Abraham for only one thing. Okay? He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Abraham is clearly getting the better end of this deal. Blah, 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 blah. Bless the whole nations, the Messiah. You're going to get a son. You're going to have the land, blah, blah, blah. 
And in return, I just want one thing, because this is a covenant. This is like a marriage. It's very much like a marriage. In return, Abraham, you must be devoted only to me as your God, and a sign of this will be that you and all of your descendants forever, by the way, this, this, this part of the covenant never ended, this part, but it's only with the Jews. I'm not saying for you guys here, some of you are going to go home and, and maybe get, sign up for a circumcision or something. It's not, if you're not a Jew, it's not for you, but, but God with Abraham makes a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's physical descendants forever. It's still in play. That you, Abraham, and all of your descendants, the Jewish people, for all time, you will be circumcised as a sign. I have a, I have a ring on right now, and it's a sign of my covenant, lifelong covenant with my wife, Ladon. And God made a forever covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people. But he was going to bless all the nations, not just the Jews, but the covenant part was just with the Jews. He was going to bless the nations through the Jews. And so right there, that's one of the reasons why circumcision is so important. It's a, it's a sign of this special covenant. This, it's like a marriage between these people and God. Okay. Now, the other thing is that you have to realize is there's more to circumcision than just the sign. And we talked about this a little bit last summer. I got to just review a little bit here to make, have this story make sense, okay? But last summer, if you want to hear all the, I'm not going to use all the Bible passages now. Last summer, I preached a whole series on the law. And in parts three and four, we talked about the different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. And we talked at length about circumcision in those messages, okay? And you can go back and listen to those. But anyway, circumcision was not just a sign of this special covenant between, you know, a marriage covenant, essentially, between God and Abraham's descendants. It is also a, a law that has to do with keeping the Israelite people separate from the surrounding nations, okay? So, and I want you to think about this. Uh, the God, one of the main purposes why God was birthing the Israelite people. He was birthing the Israelite people for a reason. Like, they didn't exist before. There was not an Israelite nation all along. There was no Israelite nation, and God decides out of nothing to birth this brand new nation out of Egypt, the descendants of Abraham. And one of the main reasons why he was birthing them was he wanted them to be a light. He wanted them to be totally uh, you know, like a, like a light on a hill, like a city on a hill, right, Jesus talks about. He wanted them to be a light to all the nations. He wanted them to have radically different laws, radically different behavior, radically different religion, radically different everything, so that all the other nations of the world would look at this people, the Israel, and go, wow, and be attracted to the one true God, Yahweh, through them. So that is one of the main reasons why God is birthing the people of Israel. Now, here's the thing. In order to carry out that purpose, in order to carry out the purpose of being a light to the nations, one of the things that was very important to God was the Israelites have to remain distinct. They have to be very different. In order to be a light to the nations, Israel could not be a multicultural nation. Okay? Now, if you're here today and you're new and you don't know me, don't think weird things. I am not preaching here today against multiculturalism in Canada. Canada isn't Israel. Okay? And I'm not saying anything bad about immigrants and any of that sort of thing. Okay, some of you might get weird ideas and talk about it in the coffee shops, and it's not true, okay? I'm not against multiculturalism in Canada, but Israel, for the purposes she was called to, you can see why multiculturalism wouldn't work, right? Because if you just have a whole bunch of people moving into Israel, and they bring their religion and their thoughts and their idols and their culture, well, if, if, and it just becomes a big melting pot, suddenly it's no, Israel's no longer different from the surrounding nations. It's no longer a light. So God wanted Israel to remain distinct, separate from the nations. And so he gave him a whole bunch of laws. Some of the laws in the Old Testament, not all of them, but some of the laws in the Old Testament are what we called last year separation laws, which was to keep Israel separate from the surrounding nations. Okay? One of the main laws that served that function was circumcision. Okay? 
Again, now, now think about this, of course, and, and it's obvious why, right? Because as God blesses Israel with prosperity, what's going to happen? What happens whenever there's prosperity anywhere on the earth? Lots of people move there. So God's going to bless Israel with all kinds of prosperity, and he knows that thousands and thousands of people are going to move in and become Israelites because they want to enjoy this pro- the blessings of God, right? But again, they're going to bring their idols, they're going to bring their culture, and they're going to water down what Israel is, and Israel will lose the light for which she was made in the first place. So God says, I don't want everybody and their dog just moving into Israel and become, getting their passport, and now they're a Jew, okay? So one of the things is, and there was a bunch of other things too, but one of the things was circumcision, which was, you want to become an Israelite? You've got to go on to the snip, okay? And for obvious reasons, that kept lots of people out, Okay? Just think about it, okay? So now, and we know from history that the surrounding nations thought at that time, thought of circumcision as a barbaric practice. They didn't like it, okay? Okay, so now you've got some history. Why God circumcised? Now, okay? Now think about, let's come back to Exodus 4, Moses, Zipporah. Ooh, crazy stuff happened in a tent, okay? Um, <laughs> why is God so concerned about this? A couple reasons, okay? Uh, first of all, Moses has just met with God in person. He's just met right with Yahweh. He met with Yahweh. Okay, think about this. Think about going into the presence of, of holy God and he gives you an assignment and you, and you finally say yes and you say, okay, yes, I'll do it. Then you turn around and you go to carry out that assignment but you blatantly disregard his laws. That shows a stunning lack of the fear of God. Does it not? I mean, I mean, Moses didn't just get, you know, you kind of a, a thought in his head that he should go and serve. He met with Yahweh himself, then turned around and blatantly, because one of his sons is not circumcised, and blatantly, and here's the other thing I want you to remember. It's not like Moses had a whole bunch of laws to obey at this point, because he, he's the one who's going to get the laws on Mount Sinai. To this point in Hebrew history, God has only given them one law to obey. One law, circumcision. Moses goes into the presence of Yahweh himself and says, yes, I'll do your work, turns around and blatantly heads off to Egypt while one of his sons is uncircumcised. He's blatantly disregarding the one law God has given to all the Hebrew males. And so that's not, I mean, that, okay, it shows stunning lack of the fear of God, first of all. And isn't that just, by the way, isn't that the definition of compromise? That is the definition of compromise. You say yes to doing God's work, but you disregard his laws while you do them. I wonder how many of us here today are compromising. We think it's enough just to do God's work. I'm doing ministry. I'm doing this. But at work, we're compromising our integrity on our taxes or wherever. We're compromising our integrity with our mouth. We're compromising our, we're cutting corners with what he asked us to do. But we say, oh yeah, I'll do your work, fine. I'm doing God's work, but we're disregarding his commands. That's compromise. There's a second reason why this is so important to God. Think about this now, okay? Moses is going to go and be the very first leader the Israelites ever have. He's going to lead them out of Egypt. He's going to be the first one, and he'll always be the most famous one because he is the first one in all the big miracles. And God knows if he goes in there and leads the Israelites out and and he hasn't even circumcised all his kids, there's not a chance his followers are all going to circumcise theirs. See, here's the thing. With great responsibility, right, comes great accountability. And that God has got to hold us as leaders to a higher standard. He has to. Because the followers aren't going to go beyond what we're doing. 
And God knows if I let this guy who's compromising for the very beginning, if I let him go to Egypt and lead these people of Israel out, none of them is going to do what I'm asking them to do either. And none of them is going to circumcise all of their kids if he's not. And in the very first generation, we're going to have lots of foreigners coming in. The light's going to be gone. And the whole reason I'm birthing them will be gone in 20, 30, 40 years. And so God, gives, God actually gives Moses a few days to comply. We know this from the story because after the burning bush, he goes to his father-in-law, gets permission, packs up his stuff, he starts traveling. God gives him a few days to comply. But when he sees that Moses is determined to compromise, he comes down to the camp, and we don't know now here, is he going to kill Moses? Is he going to kill uh, Moses' uh, uh, son? And, uh, and by the way, I should just give you one other little thing here too on the compromise thing. Um, I think it was Moses' second son. The, the, the passage doesn't tell us. I think it was the, the, the second son that Moses didn't circumcise because it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't circumcise your first and then you would your second. And so here's what I think happened. When Moses first went out into the desert in disillusionment, he was disillusioned, but he was still committed to serving God. And so he meets Zipporah, his wife. She's not a Jew, but they marry. They have their first kid, Gershom. And I think Moses circumcised him because he's committed. I mean, this is what we all have to do. This, God gave us this law. And I think what happened is Zipporah, I mean, when she sees Gershom crying and the blood and stuff, and, and I think she basically said, over my dead body, is this going to happen to any of our other kids, right? Because we know that her culture looked down on circumcision. And so, but Moses was committed at the beginning, but as his time in the desert went on, he's thinking, I've been out here for many years, I'm abandoned by God, I'm on the scrap heap, and he begins to compromise. And so when son number two comes up, he doesn't insist. And I mean, guys, those of you who are married here today, I mean, you, you know how that pressure at home can feel, right? If your wife doesn't want to do something, I don't know if it's some, how God made them or if it's something they learned at some kind of woman's school, but women have this thing. If they don't want to do something, they don't even have to tell you they don't want to do it. You know. There's like this cold energy that they can just direct and it just pierces deep. And it, ooh, you don't even want to bring it up. I can imagine Moses kind of tiptoeing around the subject. Would you mind if, you know, Eliezer, if we kind of circum... Have you thought about... And he, he doesn't want to bring it up, right? But anyway, he compromises and he caves in. And so, Mo, and so whatever the reasons, right? I mean, we all have reasons why we compromise. He compromises to pressure in the home or whatever. And so God shows up. And then, then we have this story. And, and, and so God shows up. He's going to kill one of them. We don't know which one. The interesting thing to me is Zipporah somehow knows. The, the passage doesn't tell us. Zipporah knows why God's there. She knows what he's about to do. And she knows it has to do with circumcision. I find that fascinating. She knows, she knows. And so she grabs the flint knife. And by the way, Eliezer wasn't a baby, okay? He's probably a young man, a very obedient young man. <laughs> because she says, lift up the robes. He does, and she does it. And she says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, Hebrew scholars tell us that bridegroom of blood, that is like, a, it's like a, an insult. She's not happy here. She's disgusted with what she just did. And again, remember, in her culture, she thought of circumcision as barbaric. And uh, there is a, just a truth here. As we were singing, all is well with my soul. He makes us rich and poor. He, he raises up, he lowers us. I'm going to do a whole series on this at some point, offense. But one of the things you need to know about God is this. He will, at some point in your life, he will offend you. He will offend you. And we don't talk about this enough in the church, and we need to talk about it. I could show you examples in the New Testament. John the Baptist, Jesus intentionally offended him. And he said, blessed are those who are not offended by me. He will, he will intentionally offend you in some way. 
and he, to see, to test your heart to see if you will love him. And he has many different ways of doing it. He will offend you by taking someone you love and see if you still love him. He will offend you by taking a ministry or he will offend you by giving you some kind of whatever, infirmity for a time or whatever, but he will offend you with a circumstance. He will send something your way and you will be tempted to get mad at God. You will be disgusted. I don't deserve this. I don't want this. And he is offending you on purpose. It's not even from the devil. I mean, sometimes the devil does bad stuff too, but sometimes it's straight from God. He's offending you to see if you will love him and if you will obey him. And that is exactly what he's doing to Zipporah here. Unfortunately, she passes the test. She is disgusted with circumcision. She thinks it's barbaric. But when, but when it comes up to the thing, when it comes up to the test, she says, okay, and she submits, she bows. And she does the very thing she's disgusted with. And she's not happy about it, but later on, she's going to meet up with Moses again in the desert, and she's with Moses, and, and uh, we don't know much else about her, but, but she's, she's with him then, you know, on the story. After Israel comes out of Egypt, she's with him on that, on that journey. But compromise and offense. Compromise will take you from stage three, and it will put you right back in stage two, and you may never get out. Compromise an offense. Well, I want to finish now. There's three different types of people here, three different types of people here today, and depending on, on who you are and where you're at, a different point in this message will, will you know, the Holy Spirit wants to convict you with, and the other two won't, won't do much. And some of you are people here today, and that's why I'm going to pray in just a moment. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak into your life. Some of you are people here today, God wants to give you a go. He wants to give you a go. I don't know what it is. He wants to give you a go. He wants to tell you to give something like you've never given before. He wants you to, to serve in some new place. He wants you to start some new ministry. He wants you just to go back and apologize to someone. I don't know what it is. From little to small, he has a go for you. And he wants to tell you that go today. Some of you are here. There's a second group of people here today. And you have already gotten a go. You have gotten to go. It might have been a year ago. It might have been five years ago. It might have been two months ago. It might have been a week ago. You've already pushed under the surface and forgotten about it because you said, I can't and I won't. You were too afraid. You were too weak. And that part is okay, but you didn't trust God and that part is not okay. And so you have refused to act on what you know God told you to do. You were at an encounter retreat two years ago, perhaps, and God told you, you're going to start doing X, or you're going to go and do this, or you're going to go and make this right, and you still haven't done it. God gave you a go, and you are not trusting him. You're not going forward. God wants to speak to you about that today. And then there's a third group of people here today. God has given you a go. You have already stepped out. You've begun to do what he told you to do, but you're cutting corners, and you're compromising. Or you're tempted to. And so I want to pray. I want you just to put your hands out again like we did last week. I want you to put your hands out. I want you to bow your heads. Every one of you here, I want you to bow your heads. I want you to put your hands out. And I want to just let the Holy Spirit for a moment speak to your hearts. My words mean nothing, but whatever God wants to speak to you now, that's what matters. What does God want to say to you today? And I dare you to give God an I will no matter what. I dare you to trust him. Even when he takes you in water, that is way, way, way over your head. So hands out in front, eyes closed, heads bowed. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, as a group here today, we give you our I will. We are afraid to say I will to you. We ask you for help even to say it. Father, there are some here right now, you want to give them a go. There's an assignment. You just want them to show up. You want them to do it. You want them to open up their mouths and just give you the weaknesses that they have. Lord, I pray that you would impress that on their hearts even right now.
there are people here today, you're giving them a go. Lord, there's a second group of people here right now, and even as you continue to speak to that first group, Lord, there's a second group of people here right now, you've given them a go, and they have not trusted you. In fact, they've forgotten about it. They forgot about it because they just pushed it so far into the surface. They've refused to act on it. Now they don't even think about it anymore. But that you bring it to the surface again, Lord, those things that you've told them to do. Lord, they said, I can't and I won't. I pray that you would change it to I can't and I will. And then thirdly, Lord, there are people here today, they, they've, they've gotten to go. They've even said yes. They've begun to walk. They've begun to serve. They've gotten back in the game. And Father, they're tempted to compromise or they're already compromising. They're cutting corners on what you told them to do or they're cutting corners of their integrity or in some area of their life. Father, I pray that you'd speak to them now. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.